team for leading us this morning. Appreciate that. Good morning, folks. A couple of weeks ago, we started a series of messages titled The Non-Negotiables for the Church. These non-negotiables are the foundational beliefs or foundational principles that explain why we do church the way we do. Everything we do at The Rock can be explained by these foundational principles or these non-negotiables. They're the fences that establish the boundaries for what we will and what we will not do. Essentially, they define us. And there are five of them. A high view of God, a high view of Scripture, a biblical view of man, a biblical view of the church, and a biblical view of leadership. We started with the high view of God, non-negotiable. A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that is true for us both individually and collectively. Our thoughts and our understanding of God are determinative. It shapes who we are becoming, both as individuals and as a local church. A high view of God means that we're prepared to accept what God has revealed about himself as the supreme, sovereign, one-of-a-kind, only true God. In his own words, I am the first and the last, and there is no God Besides me. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6. And a high view of God will impact us in our approach to worship. It will determine the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the the messages that we preach, and even how we interact with one another. It will also impact our approach to life. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13 reads, That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. After examining all that this life has to offer, the best that this life has to offer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that was his conclusion. A high view of God promotes a fear God and obey his commands approach to life. It also impacts our approach to ourselves. We are confronted by at least two realities. He is the potter, we are the clay. Secondly, it's not all about us. So a high view of God shapes who we are becoming as individuals and as the Rock Community Church. Last week, we turned our attention to a high view of Scripture. The special, God-breathed, Spirit-driven, written revelation of God, His self-disclosure of His person, plans, and purposes. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
This book that we hold in our hands is an entirely sufficient, reliable, clear, inerrant, infallible, supernaturally preserved copy of God's written revelation to us. Two implications. We ought to consider the scriptures to be of great value. Remember those MasterCard commercials, the priceless ones? There are some things that money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Well, for believers, this Bible is the priceless. We need to value it as priceless. Secondly, proximity or exposure equals influence. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Remember, hear it, read it, memorize it, or study it, memorize it, and meditate on it so that we can be careful to do everything written in it. A high view of Scripture will ensure that God's Word remains the centerpiece of all that we do here at the Rock Community Church. Indeed, we will be doing God's business God's way. This morning, I want us to move on to the third non-negotiable for the church, a biblical view of man. A biblical view is actually God's view, how he sees us as disclosed in the pages of this book. I want us to consider four different passages this morning that lay the foundation for a biblical view of man. Four realities, and I've titled them, A Great Beginning, A Colossal Failure, A Perpetual Problem, and A Gracious Provision. But before we go there, allow me to invite you to turn to Psalm 90 for the reading from God's Word this morning. And this psalm really is preparatory for the message in that it takes a look at God's eternalness and contrasts that with with the brevity of our lives. So Psalm 90, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Psalm 90 and verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man into back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Father, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is no God beside you. Forgive us those times when we put you on hold, when we turn and walk away, when we don't have time to give you the time of day when we try to hide, when we refuse to obey because we want to do our own thing. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've made available in Jesus. By shedding his blood, he paid the price for our past, present, and future sins. What an amazing, gracious provision. Thank you, too, for your word. In it, you have revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. Father, help us this morning to grasp your view of who we are. Prevent us from being defensive or dismissive. Give us ears that hear, eyes that see and hearts that are receptive so that your word can bear much fruit in each of our lives, individually and collectively. By the power of your spirit and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, reality number one, a great beginning. Turn with me. If you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go right back to the very beginning. And I apologized. I realized after the service started that I um, was negligent in putting these four passages of scriptures on the PowerPoint. So if you want to write down Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, is the first passage that we'll be looking at. And there's four of them, like I said earlier. So we're going to have to breeze through these fairly quickly this morning. I'll make three or four observations in each passage and then we'll move on. But here we have a biblical view of man 
as revealed by God starts with a great beginning. Let's start, first of all, notice verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then drop down to verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. Verse 6. Then God said, let there be and another creative act. Verse 9, 11, 14, and 20. We have creative act after creative act. And then notice verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man. Interesting. The us introduces us to the plurality within the unity of the Godhead. Here we catch just a glimpse. Out of the corner of your eye, you will notice that, well, what eventually will become the unveiling of a Trinitarian God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, The Lord is one, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. But this is the the genius of God's progressive revelation. This God-breathed scriptures is continuing to unfold in written form what the person, plans, and purposes of God are like. And it becomes increasingly clear as this progressive revelation Unfolds. But here in Genesis chapter 1, we catch a glimpse of this plurality within the Godhead. Genesis chapter 1 reveals that it was God who took the initiative to create man. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, including humanity. So man was created as a result of God's initiative. Notice continuing verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Drop down to verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Image or likeness, they're synonymous terms. But man was created in God's likeness. Not a carbon copy. Did I just date myself? How many people know what a carbon copy is? A few, few older folks in the crowd. My point is that we are not the exact representation of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. That belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Humanity was created in God's likeness in the sense that we're relational beings. We're, we're rational. We're social. We're, we're moral. We, we have consciousness. The list can go on and on. We reflect what God is like. And certainly not an exact representation But in the best of times, we display God-likeness. Continuing in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to his likeness, 
and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, we don't have to turn into tree huggers, but we need to understand that man was given unique privileges and responsibilities by God. Verse 31, God saw that he had, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Man was the pinnacle of God's creative activity. After each of the previous creative initiatives described in Genesis chapter 1, God paused to evaluate his work. You can read it for yourself. After each one of those pauses, God declared or reported, and God saw that it was good. And it was not until humanity was created, that unique creation of God, the one created is his like, it was following that, that the, cre- the creation of man, that the creative activity of God was declared not to be good, but to be very good. Man, humanity, was the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Flip over just for a moment to Psalm chapter 8. Here again, the psalmist makes it clear. Psalm chapter 8, or Psalm 8 and um, verse 4. Let's begin there. Read down to the end of verse 6. Beginning at verse 4 of Psalm 8. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. That you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That verse is actually quoted again in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So the point is, humanity got off to a, a great start. Man was created as a result of God's initiative in his image. He was given unique privileges and responsibilities. And he was the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Indeed, it was a great beginning, which brings us to reality number two, a colossal failure. And unfortunately, it doesn't take long. In fact, I don't even have to turn the page in my Bible to get to Genesis chapter 3. But before we go there, notice verse 25, the last verse of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not 
ashamed. This was intended to communicate a whole lot more than just physical nakedness. They were vulnerable, completely transparent, with no sense of self-consciousness or self-awareness. In a sense, they, they were not aware of themselves as, as individuals, kind of. And perhaps as we reflect on, on, on this scene at the end of chapter 2, this is a match made in heaven for maybe the, perhaps the only time in God's creation that that was ever known. But then, of course, the wheels fall off. And that's the story that's recounted for us in Genesis chapter 3. Let me try to summarize this story with some observations. Number one, man is assaulted by God's arch enemy. And make no mistake about it. The one identified as the serpent is none other than Satan himself. He is the one orchestrating this attack on on God and and trying to undermine God's relationship with his creation. He used the same strategy when Jesus was about to start his public ministry. In fact, the Apostle Paul, an expression of concern for believers in the city of Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, wrote these words. But I'm afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so he's still up to his old tricks, even to this very day. But here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Satan, manifesting himself as the serpent, first engages the woman, and then the woman engages the man. And the next observation is that man chooses to disobey God's clear prohibition. We need to understand that when God created Adam and Eve, they were created in innocence. They were absolutely sinless but untested. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, that was a test. Would they love and trust God enough not to eat of its fruit? Well, notice verse 16 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Um, Is that a confusing prohibition? Seems pretty clear to me, right? Flip over to chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. That brings 1 John chapter 2 verse 16 to my mind. 
where it reads, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, you and I face a similar test every single day. Adam, deliberately, and Eve, deceived by the serpent, chose to disobey God's clear prohibition. The next observation, man's disobedience produced some immediate consequences. Notice verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve, as a result of their act of disobedience, gained a new self-awareness or self-consciousness that caused them to to hide, to withdraw from each other and from their God. Relational alienation was the immediate consequence. And that was only the beginning. Because man's disobedience produced some long-term consequences. God pronounced his judgment on all three participants. First the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. The serpent's sentencing is found in verses 14 and 15. Going forward, the woman would experience pain in childbirth and relational tensions with her husband. Adam would find his labors less rewarding. In fact, they would be rewarded with thorns and thistles or weeds. Physical death was now introduced as a result of their act of defiance. And finally, they were driven out of the garden where they had previously remembered, enjoyed walking with God in the cool of the day. Their intimate relationship with God had ended. It was not just a physical death, but a spiritual death became the reality. So man was assaulted by God's arch enemy, chose to disobey God's clear prohibition, which resulted in both immediate and long-term consequences which led to reality number three, a perpetual problem. A problem that just goes on and on and on like the ever-ready bunny. And this is bad news, but bear with me. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. As you turn there, listen to Paul's summary of Genesis chapter 3 as presented in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
And by death, Paul again is referring to both physical and spiritual death or separation from God. You and I should never attend a funeral without thinking of man's perpetual problem. It's a constant reminder. Physical death. Paul begins chapter 3 with a question notice. Romans chapter 3 verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? And so verses 1 through 8, he talks about that. And there are some definite advantages of being a Jew. And he lists them or discusses them. But then notice verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Paul was a Jew. Not at all. For we have all, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, everybody's under sin. Both Jew and non-Jew. That, who else is there? That includes all of us. So man is under sin. And by under sin, it means to be under sin's domination and condemnation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Again, meaning both physical and spiritual death. And no one is exempt. In fact, man is inherently sinful. We're all BUI, born under the influence of sin, under its domination and condemnation. We do not become sinners when we commit our first sinful act. We are sinners by nature. Thank you, Adam. And I don't mean your former pastor. I mean Genesis chapter 3, Adam. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. New Living Translation translates that verse, Behold, or for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And we all are. From the moment of conception forward, we are sinful creatures. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2 in just a few moments, but allow me to read verse 3 for us now. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You may want to underline that phrase. We're by nature children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. We are sinners by our very nature. And as a result, we are correct in saying that man, humanity, is totally depraved. And the doctrine of total depravity is not saying that we are as bad as that we can possibly be. But what it is saying is that sin has polluted every part of us, every nook and cranny. And that sinfulness finds expression 
in all kinds of ways and places, areas of our lives. Here in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul goes on to use the Old Testament to identify some of the more common areas where our sinfulness bubbles to the surface. Notice verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Wow. Did you get the message? None, none, none. All, none, not even one. In our character. That's our character where sin bubbles to the surface. How about the next? In our speech, verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15 and 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Our behavior. And then finally, verse 18. There is no one, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Even in our attitude toward God sinfulness can bubble to the surface. In fact, I've got written in the column of my Bible, I'm not sure when I wrote this, but I've got practical atheism. Those are just four possibilities. The list could be endless, couldn't it? Of how sin manifests itself in our lives. Left to our depravity, we will do Anything and everything we can possibly do to to not acknowledge God and to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So the law presents the standard of righteousness required by God. That's the law's purpose. It's the measuring stick, so to speak. And then verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of of sin. Here's the phrase that I'd like you to underline. No flesh will be justified in his sight. Man is incapable of meeting God's standard of acceptability. It's impossible. Man is totally depraved. Man is inherently sinful. Man is under the dominion and condemnation of sin. And you and I cannot fix this perpetuating problem. Not for ourselves and not for anyone else. And that brings us to our final reality. A gracious provision. But before we get there, allow me to read just an excerpt 
in my studies this week, I came across this article. And uh, I thought, this is interesting. It's titled, How the Bible Views Humanity, and then in brackets, and How to Get Over It. It's written by a guy by the name of Neil Carter, and here's his bio. Neil Carter is a high school teacher, a writer, a speaker, a father and four, and a skeptic living in the Bible Belt. A former church elder with a seminary education. Neil now, now writes mostly about the struggles of former evangelicals living in the midst of a highly religious subculture. Here's what he writes. Evangelical Christianity, and truth be told, the same can be said for its red-headed stepchild, progressive Christianity, teaches people to disparage themselves so that, so effectively that it spills out in the very first sentences of their personal introductions. Like all other American cultural products, evangelical Christianity has managed to take something very ugly, and in brackets, and quotation marks, you are wretched and worthless on your own, and has repackaged it into something inviting. They dress it up in stylish denim and untucked plaid shirts, saying the most terrible things through their perfect teeth. They make it look so cool to hate yourself. But then, what else should we expect from a religion that took a symbol of execution and turned it into a piece of jewelry? some of them hanging more than dozens of crosses on a single wall in their homes, each one of them a separate work of art, glorifying one of the most gruesome forms of torture ever invented by ancient civilizations. Is it any wonder that this religion keeps gravitating toward anti-human thinking, no matter what form it takes or which language it speaks? Even the nice versions cannot seem to shake this fundamental belief that human nature is, at bottom, broken. As I said in a previous post from earlier this year, and he quotes himself, there are at least a handful of essentials which seem to undergird everything that can be reasonably called Christianity. And this appears to be one of them. In order to need a savior, you have to feel there is something you need saving from. And that means you have to believe that somehow you are really, really in bad shape. And you have to feel that you need saving in the first place. And that means taking whatever you currently view yourself happens to be, no matter how low it already is, and lowering it even further. He ends the article by talking about a friend. She gave me this little Superman to remind me that we can perform our own small acts of heroism if we don't lose hope. In her own way, she was becoming one of the voices in my head, telling me a better story about who I am and who I can be. Find such people. 
This is the application of the article. Find such people. Cherish them. Cultivate relationships with, with them and prioritize that in your life. It's worth it. And it just might help you dig your way out of the hole that growing up with a biblical view of yourself puts you in. Folks, let me be crystal clear. Here at The Rock, we are not going to get over a biblical view of man. You are not going to receive a a little Superman and be reminded to do your own acts of heroism. You won't hear a better story about who you are, but you will hear a better story about who you can be in Jesus Christ. But apart from him, it's not going to happen. We are committed to telling you the truth about you as it is revealed in God's word. Even when it hurts or it's uncomfortable or it's hard to say. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. This is our final passage. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It's interesting, some people have referred to this section from 1 1 to the end of verse 10 as the Christian biography or testimony. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers here in the church, in a Christian community in the city of Ephesus. In these 10 verses, he paints a, a verbal before and after picture. So in verses 1 to 3, we see the before, and it's not a pretty picture. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Isn't it interesting? Notice in verse 3 there how Paul includes himself and his ministry partners in that group of people. This is where we all come from. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. That's the truth according to God's word, how he sees us. And then comes verse 4. But God. Underline that. Highlight it. Circle it. All of the above. That's the hinge point of the story. The hinge point of our lives. Or as Hockey Night in Canada used to say, that's the turning point of the game right there. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, my. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. 
Man is the recipient of God's mercy and great love. Most of us know John chapter 3, verse 16 by memory. But Romans chapter 5, verse 8 reads, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow concerning his promises. As some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. God's wish would be that we would all respond appropriately to his demonstration of love for us. Let's continue to look at that life beyond the but God. Notice verses 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man is redeemable. Remember the old hymn? Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Redeemed. Redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed. Redeemed. His child and forever I am. Notice verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Man is saved through faith alone, not by works, not by anything you and I can do. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, we don't get to the good news until we first deal with the reality of the bad news. In fact, Jesus responded to some of his critics this way. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows little love. See, you and I, we don't need to spend our time sowing fig leaves or hiding amongst the trees in the garden. We don't need to dismiss or deny who God tells us we are. We don't need to spend our time trying to work at it so that somehow our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. It is because of His great love which He loved us. He paid the price. He bore the penalty for our sin. And so what? How does this affect us? How might this affect us here at The Rock as a community of believers? I'd like to suggest just quickly three things. Here at The Rock, we are going to strive, as God enables us, to be a localized expression of the body of Christ that, number one, 
proclaims the truth about man's total depravity. And sin, and we're even going to talk about hell, that place of eternal damnation reserved for Satan and his angels and for those who insist on refusing to acknowledge God, knowing that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Does that make sense? We're going to be a church that proclaims the gospel and does all that we can to persuade others to respond appropriately to God's demonstration of love for him, both at an individual level, as we go out into our workplaces, in our circles of influence, and collectively as well. Knowing that salvation is not dependent on you and I, one iota, but on the call of God on a person's life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, But by his doing, you are in Christ. That's true of all of us. It's his doing, God's doing. And then finally, we're going to be a church that equips and inspires each other to wake up every single day determined to battle the sin in our lives. Working out our salvation as God works in us. After all, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And I guess the what we really hope for is that people will look at us and say, wow, unschooled or uneducated ordinary people who spent time with Jesus. Greatest compliment we could ever be paid. Biblical view of man is founded on four realities. A great beginning, a colossal failure, a perpetual problem, and a gracious but God provision. Pray with me. Have mercy on us, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of our sins. Thank you for Jesus. He suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring us safely home to you. Let us not become weary in doing good, knowing that at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.